Have you ever been misunderstood? <laughs> Have you ever had your character maligned? Have you ever been the victim of lies or gossip? You know, oftentimes when this happens, it's because people only know a part of the story. They don't have all the facts. And so they jump to conclusions. I've had that happen to me. I'm sure some of you have had that happen to you. Well, Paul experienced that as well at the hands of the Corinthians. And last week we saw how Paul dealt with questions that they had regarding his suffering. That there were those who were saying such things like, if Paul was really a man of God, if he was really an apostle, why does he suffer so much? And we talked about that last week, and we saw some really rich insight that Paul gave us about suffering as he answered those questions. Well, tonight we're going to see how Paul responds to the questions regarding his integrity. You see, we saw in 1 Corinthians that Paul had expressed his desire to come and visit the the church in Corinth. He wanted to come back with them. He wanted to, to be with them a second time. But he had been delayed. And so there were those who were against Paul, didn't really like Paul. And so they were using his delay as sort of ammunition against him to say, look, Paul can't be trusted. He doesn't keep his word. Look, he hasn't come. We can't trust Paul. He doesn't keep his promises. And therefore, can we really, really trust the the things that he's writing to us, that they are from God? Now, in his book, Profiles in Courage, John F. Kennedy wrote this, Great crisis produce great men and great deeds of courage. Now, while that might be true, that a crisis can help make a person, it's also true that a crisis helps reveal what a person is made of. It's in the times of crisis that I think who we really are comes out. It was Warren Wiersbe who said, how we handle the difficulties of life will depend largely on what kind of character we have For what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. Such a great word there. Well, tonight we're going to get a glimpse of what was in Paul. We're going to get a glimpse of kind of the character that this man was made of. And I remind you, 2 Corinthians is a letter where Paul gets really personal and really real. And he really opens up concerning the things and the struggles that he was going through. We're going to pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 1. Notice Paul says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as I also, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now Paul begins here by stating the fact that 
as he ministered there among them, he, he was able to look back on his ministry with a clear conscience. And having a clear conscience was a big deal to Paul. And really, it should be a big deal to us. You know, when your conscience is clear, you have a real confidence in what you're doing and in ministry and in your walking with the Lord and serving you know, the Lord. It, it's the opposite and when you don't have a clear conscience and you find yourself, you know, maybe in a ministry type of position and, and you're like, you know that you haven't been in the right place. And so you're like crying out to God, you know, just personally, Lord, please be gracious. You know, please make up for my lack. You know, please make up for my hypocrisy. Well, Paul was able to minister with a clear conscience. It was a big deal. To him. He uses the word conscience 23 times in his letters. 23 times in his teachings, one such place is in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. He says this, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. You know, it's been said that your conscience is either going to accuse you or excuse you. Think about that. It's either going to accuse you it's going to be, you know, just telling you where you're off, where you're wrong, where, where you sin, or it's going to excuse you. And Paul is saying, hey, I can make it my boast. My conscience exonerates me. And what Paul is going to do here in the rest of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 is he's inviting the Corinthian believers to look back and examine his life and examine his ministry amongst them. And Paul's going to give us four reasons why he, was, why he was able to say that I could minister among you with a clear conscience. The first reason we see is that he had the right conduct among them. He says in verse 12 that he conducted himself in simplicity and godly sincerity. We behave with simplicity. A better translation of this word would be moral purity or even holiness. In other words, Paul's life wasn't marked by a duplicity. He wasn't one person, you know, in one place and another person in another place. It wasn't marked by a duplicity. It wasn't marked by, you know, a duality of that. He was, you know, when he was on, you know, being his Paul the Apostle, he was one way. But when he wasn't, you know, he's somewhere else. He wasn't, no, another way. That wasn't Paul's life. There was, like, there was a moral purity. There was a, a sincerity to it. I heard a story about a man who was being tailgated one day by a woman. She was in a hurry. And when he didn't stop or didn't go through the yellow light, but it stopped and she came up behind him, she was furious. She started banging on the horn. She's yelling out the window. She starts cussing at this guy and she's just getting so upset. Well, when the light turned green, the man went off. But all of a sudden as she started to go, a police officer pulled in behind her, put on his lights and pulled her over. He walked up and asked her for her license and registration. And she's wondering like, what in the world did I do? And he takes her license and registration, and sure enough, he, you know, it comes out, it checks out that this is her and this is her car. And, and she says to him, Officer, what did I do wrong? And he said, Well, you see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn and flipping off the guy in front of you and cussing up a storm, and I noticed your what would Jesus do bumper sticker. 
and your Choose Life license plate and your chrome-plated fish, and I just assumed this car was probably stolen, so I pulled you over. <laughs> Listen, our behavior matters. And Paul was saying, I'm not one way in person and another way in private. I'm not one way in my letters and another way in person. You know, it's been said that integrity is who you are when no one else is looking. Now, Paul says that he ministered with a simplicity and a godly sincerity. That word sincerity is a marvelous word. In the English language, sincere comes from two Latin words, sincera, which means without wax. In the Greek, sincere meant to be tested by the sun. And here's where this idea came from. In the first century, if you were shopping in the marketplace, sometimes there would be crooked shop owners who, if they had a pot that maybe had a little crack in it, they would fill it with, with wax. So you couldn't see the crack. And you would think, oh, this is a great pot. And you'd buy it and you'd take it home. You'd put it in water. And, you know, after a little bit of time, if it was sitting out in the sun, the wax would melt and, and water would start pouring out. And you knew that you got ripped off. And so the smart shopper, what they would start to do is they'd take the pot, they'd bring it out into the sun, and they would hold it up to see if there was any wax in it, that the light would shine and it would reveal the wax. Shop owners realized that this was going on, so really, shop owners that really cared about this, they would stamp their pots sincera, which meant without wax, that, there was, that it was authentic. And this is what Paul is saying, that there was no hypocrisy in his life. There was no duplicity in his life. And also, Paul wasn't trying to be something that he wasn't either. Notice at the end of verse 12, he says that we did not come to you with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Remember what Paul wrote to these guys in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2. Let me read it to you. It'll be on the screen. He says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I love that. Paul didn't come there trying to be something that he wasn't. He wasn't trying to be. Paul was not known to be a great orator. And he didn't come trying to wow them with his persuasive words. He came and he says, I, thought to, I sought to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I never, I'll never forget this. This, this. this was such a remarkable moment in my life and in my call to ministry. Greg Laurie was having a conference called Preaching the Word Conference several, many, many years ago. And he had several really, really great Bible teachers and Bible communicators that were part of this conference Chuck Swindoll was one of the speakers, great, great orator. Um, John MacArthur was one of the speakers. Um, 
I think David Jeremiah was one of the speakers. I mean, three guys that just are really, really good in their delivery of God's word. And then Pastor Chuck Smith was one of the guys that was speaking. And, and um, MacArthur, Dr. Jeremiah, and Swindoll, all, they were the first three speakers. They all spoke first. And they all gave flawless messages. Their messages were just like, Perfect, perfect illustration, just not just perfect, perfect messages. And I remember sitting there with some of my friends, and we were, you know, young guys that felt called to the ministry, but in listening to those guys, we literally our our, our thinking was I I could never do that. I mean that was just so good. I, I could never do that. I could never, ever teach God's word like that. I mean, and it was like deflating in one sense. You know, the whole, the whole, the point of the conference was to show us how to teach the word. And we all kind of left going, I could never do that. You know, I might as well just quit now, you know. And then Pastor Chuck got up. And Pastor Chuck is a brilliant guy. And he's just really, really you know, he, re- he was a brilliant guy, super smart, say to be a doctor. Um, but he really, really purposely tried to be simple in his preaching, which I really appreciate that. But he did something at this conference that I've never seen him do before. And when I get to heaven, I want to ask him, like, was that on purpose? Because what happened was amazing. And the encouragement to all of us, many of us who are in ministry today, took from that. He was teaching. He's given through his message. He was doing a good job in his message and everything. But he hits a point where all of a sudden he just like stops. And it wasn't one of those like awkward pauses that if you ever listen to Pastor Chuck, you know, that you're back in the cassette tape days, you're thinking like, did, did, did my tape get eaten, you know? Because like he pauses for so long. But it, it wasn't quite one of those. But like he paused and almost looked puzzled. And then he literally said, Oh, I forgot something. And he started like flipping through his notes like this. Like it was like the most awkward moment ever. And he's like, oh yeah, there it is. And, and he like picked up and all of us were like, okay, I can do that. You know? <laughs> that was the effect that it had on us. Now here's what's interesting. And, you know, those other men are great, great Bible teachers and great men of God and God has used them in great ways. But none of them have had 2,500 churches spawn out of their ministry. And I think part of the reason is that a lot of guys like me and looking at Pastor Chuck and seeing that he wasn't like this perfect um, teacher and perfect orator, that we, it just puts something, it's like, hey, maybe God can use me, you know? And so out of his ministry have been birthed 2,500 hundred churches all over the world. I mean, it's absolutely astounding. Well, Paul, when he came to Corinth, he wasn't trying to preach creative, trendy messages. He said, I thought I sought to just to teach and share with you Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, because that was Paul's approach, he was able to look back with a clear conscience as it related to his conduct and his motives in ministry. Paul knew, you see, his heart, and he knew that Jesus knew his heart, which helped him deal with these accusations that others were making against him. So the first reason that Paul gives for having a clear conscience is that he had the right conduct. 
in his approach to ministering to them. And Paul calls, calls them to consider his right conduct in his ministry. The second reason is his right intentions. Look at verse 15. He says, And in this confidence I intended, it's a key word, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I do them according to the flesh? That with me there would be yes and yes and no and no. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Now here's the point. A change of plan, this is the point Paul's making. A change of plan doesn't mean a fickleness of heart. Plans changed. Paul's saying, look, I didn't make these plans carelessly. I didn't do it lightly. I wanted to come to you, but he was seeking the leading of the Lord. He had every single intention to get back and see them. In fact, I want you to turn back to chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Go back just a little bit to your left. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 19. Something Paul wrote about this in his first letter. 1 Corinthians 4.19, he says, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Now turn to chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16. Look at verse 5. Again, he says to them, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5, But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia. For I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter. Like, I'm thinking, I'd like to come and stay a long time, he's saying, that you may send me on my way wherever I may go, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing. I don't want to just have a quick trip, in other words, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. So Paul's reminding them that his plans to visit uh, Corinth, that this was on his heart. This was his intention, but they weren't set in stone, but they were contingent upon God's will and God's leading. Which, by the way, is exactly how James instructed us to make plans. In James chapter 4, verse 13, James said this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life if it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this and do that. James is saying, look, we don't even know what tomorrow holds. And Paul sought to be a man who was being led by the Lord, being led by the Holy Spirit and not by men, not trying to impress or please men. In fact, turn back to 2 Corinthians, but turn to chapter 2 for a moment. And notice what Paul says there in, in verse 12. He gives further explanation for his delay in verse 12 by saying that God opened a door for him in Troas. 
Like God opened this great door for him to do ministry in Troas. And he's like, I I couldn't leave. I mean, God was doing something. It was obvious that God was leading in this way. And so Paul's a great example for us of a man who sought to be led by the Lord. He had plans, he had goals, he had desires, but he didn't allow those to, you know, so squish him or hold him to the point where he wasn't going to be allow the Lord to be the one who was directing his steps. So Paul was at peace with where he was at, even if others weren't. Now, the Corinthian Christians, I want to note this, they weren't wrong in being disappointed that Paul didn't come to visit. It was okay for them to be disappointed, but they were wrong in trying to blame Paul for their disappointment. That's where they were in error because his intentions were sincere. He was seeking to please the Lord, though, and not men. So he was only going to come if the Lord permitted. And you got to remember, Paul's living in a time, there's no planes, there's no trains, there's not even telephones. You can't text and go, hey, I got held up. There was a great open door happened in Troas, you know, I'm going to be here a little while. So it was just silence. And everybody's like, when's Paul going to get here? When's he going to come? And they weren't giving him a benefit of the doubt. Now I want you to look at verse 19. Paul draws here upon his further proven conduct when he says, for the Son of God... Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no. In other words, our message wasn't vague, but in him was yes. And Paul's saying, look, you remember when we were there, we weren't those who would tell you, you know, some people yes and other people no. It's like, no, our word was true in the same way as our preaching was. He's saying, think back to our, our message. It wasn't vague. It wasn't wishy-washy. It wasn't yes and no. And you know what? There's way too much of that in the church today. Way too much wishy-washiness in the church today. The gospel is not a message that is vague. The gospel is not, it doesn't change according to the audience. The gospel is not a chameleon gospel that changes color as the light is shine, shines upon it. It doesn't change according to the audience that's being addressed. You know, something that's real popular today in our Christian culture is what's referred to as the progressive gospel or progressive Christianity. And the idea with that is is that, in fact, let me read a quote to you from this uh, gal, Alyssa Childers. She said, Christians have been marked by their refusal to capitulate to the false ideas of culture. That's what Christianity from the very beginning has been marked by. But then she says this, however, one of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity is its tendency to flow with the societal norms. And that's what we see happening a lot today. And so you see and hear Christians talking about, for instance, homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle instead of what the Bible calls it as sin. 
People today, they call adultery, they mention, they refer to it as an affair or sin as mistakes or failures. And all of that is in an attempt to, to soften, to try to make the gospel more palatable. And Paul in his preaching, he didn't do that. He wasn't trying to conform to the Corinthian culture in order to be relevant. He was just letting the Bible speak for itself because the Bible is always relevant to the human condition. Every single time. So Paul says our preaching wasn't yes and no, but in him, in Jesus, was yes. And then he says, I love this verse. Look at verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Guys, this is such an amazing word. All the promises of God. How many? All. How many is that? Well, we really don't know, but one Bible teacher, Herbert Lockyer, did a study. He counted over 7,000 promises in the scriptures that God makes to the believer. And Paul says all of those promises are yes and amen in Christ. Now, why should that get you excited? Well, if you are a believer here tonight, if you've given your heart to Jesus, guess where you are at tonight? You are in Christ. You see, when you become a Christian, Jesus doesn't just come to live in your heart by his Holy Spirit, but you get placed in him. That's how God sees you. He looks at you, and he sees you in Christ. And Paul says all the promises of God are yes, they're certain, and amen, they are true in Christ Jesus, and you are in Christ, so those promises are there for you. I love this verse, but... It's interesting, I find very interesting, the context in which Paul uses this verse. And oftentimes when we use this verse, we, don't, we, we kind of ignore the context. You see, Paul doesn't, he does something brilliant here as he uses this verse in dealing with conflict, in dealing with these accusations. You know what Paul does is he goes vertical. He's like taking their eyes off of him right now and he's putting their eyes on Jesus. They're questioning whether Paul was a man who keeps his promises and Paul says, you know who always keeps his promises? Jesus. Jesus is the great promise keeper. But I want you to understand something here. Paul is not pointing this out as sort of a cop-out. It's kind of like that bumper sticker you see on some cars. Although people really don't do bumper stickers much anymore, but you, you probably remember seeing this one. Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. You know, remember that? You see that bumper sticker? You put that on a car and it's like a cop-out of saying, you know, you have to excuse my driving, you know? You have to excuse my poor driving because Christians aren't perfect, but we're forgiven. That's not what Paul's doing here. No, Paul's point in bringing this, this up here is to say, look, Jesus is the great promise keeper and I'm his representative. I'm a representative of Jesus, so I am doing my best to keep my promises as well because I am connected to him. And he would never do that. It's kind of the idea that, that Paul that, that once would love for people to, to think is this. Oh, that he would never do that. He's a Christian. Wouldn't that be amazing if that was what people thought about you? Oh, he would never do that. Someone brings an accusation. Oh, he would never do that. He's, he's a Christian. 
That guy, he follows Jesus. She, she follows Jesus. That's kind of the argument that Paul is making here and, and, and attaching this to the idea of that he keeps his promises. Why? Because his Lord's a promise keeper and I'm trying to be like him. I'm, he, I'm seeking to let him live through me. And that's the idea behind what Paul is saying here. Now look at verse 21. He says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us and has anointed us as God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now Paul shares four great things here about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says, first of all, that he has established us. That word means to fix or strengthen it speaks of bringing stability to our lives. And how many of you, you know, is that your testimony, that your life was just all over the place? The Bible describes us in Ephesians 2, apart from Christ, prior to coming to Christ, we were like meandering. We were like, you know, people just, you know, going around with no purpose and no direction and just kind of going from this thing to that thing and trying to please our flesh. But now Jesus has brought this stability into our lives. So, That's the first thing. He's established us. Secondly, he's anointed us. Now, in the Old Testament, the only people who were anointed by God were the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And their anointing was to equip them for service. But you know what's awesome about in the New Testament? In the New Testament, all Christians have been anointed by the Spirit. All Christians have been anointed by the Holy Spirit to be prepared and empowered for service. And as we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, he enables us to serve God and live godly lives. And he gives us special spiritual discernment that we need to walk with God and to serve God in an acceptable way. So the second thing, he's anointed us. Third, he sealed us. Now, in the ancient world, a seal was used to identify and to protect. If you had cargo or if you had a a letter, you had something that was really special, you would take wax and you'd put it on there and you would heat it up and then you'd take this this seal or this that would be heated up and you'd push that into the wax. and, And if something was sealed... If it had its insignia on it, everyone knew who it belonged to. And the seal prevented anyone from tampering with that item. Well, here's what what Paul's saying. God has placed his mark on you. Isn't that awesome? He's placed his mark on you. His Holy Spirit. He sealed you. Uh, to identify you and also to protect you. And then the fourth thing he tells us about the Holy Spirit's work is that he is the guarantee of the promise, that the promise that God has made will come true. Paul refers to it as a deposit. And the word deposit or guarantee is the word for down payment. And so what, what Paul is saying, we have been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment for the fullness of what God will do. That the Holy Spirit is just, he's a pledge to us from God, the Holy Spirit in our hearts, of greater things to come. And as Christians, God has given us this assurance that the work that he has begun in us, he's going to complete. He gives us the assurance, the Holy Spirit in your heart is the assurance that you're going to make it. You're going to make it. It's the assurance that God is committed to completing the work that he's begun in you. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that awesome to know? 
So Paul had a clear conscience in his dealing with the church in Corinth because he had the right conduct, he had the right intentions, and he had the right heart. Look at verse 23. He says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Look at chapter 2. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad? But the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. Now this is huge. Paul's revealing here that another reason why he hadn't come was to spare them. It was on his heart to to not come to them and be the heavy once again. He wouldn't come and have to deal strongly with them because of their sin. And you see, Paul didn't want to come across like he was trying to dominate them. He didn't want to come across like he was trying to legislate holiness. You see, you can't force people to walk with the Lord. Sometimes we want to try to do that. We want to try to force people. You can't do that. And Paul understood that. No, it was love that, he's saying, it was love that led me to write to you. And I did so with tears. He's like, it broke my heart to do that. It broke my heart to, to write those strong words. And, and he says, and I, didn't, I did it because I loved you and I wanted the best for you. So Paul says, God knew that I didn't want to come to you guys in sorrow again. And so Paul's here confessing. I don't enjoy being the heavy I don't enjoy being the disciplinarian. I don't get joy out of your sorrow. And and, and contrary, say, no, my my joy comes from your joy. You know, it's like, you are my joy. And when when things, it's like, I get excited when I hear what God is doing with you guys. Now, what Paul shares here gives us two powerful lessons, though, about love and discipline. The first is that true love doesn't dominate. It's not forced. A church or ministry is not there to control you. Note that. It's there to serve you. It's the purpose of the church, the ministry. It's not there to control you. It's there to serve you, to help you grow and become who the Lord desires you to be. But there's another lesson that we learn from this, is that true love will discipline and rebuke even though it's not enjoyable. But it's the calling. It's part of the process. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He's the example for us. Paul didn't enjoy discipline. He didn't run, but he didn't run from it either. He shared some hard things with these people. And Paul's saying, look, that was hard. I didn't get any enjoyment out of that. And I really didn't want to do it again. And so God spared me from coming to you. Because I knew if I came to you at this particular time, it was going to be tough. And sometimes in our relationships with those we love, we have to say hard things. That saying is true. Sometimes the truth hurts. But we're to speak the truth in love when we're confronting a brother or sister who is in error. 
So the, the next thing we see is, or the, the third thing we see is that Paul had the right heart in coming to them. The fourth thing is that he was seeking the right outcome. Look at verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might Put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now here Paul is referring to a specific situation. A specific man. And this takes us back, if you were with us in 1 Corinthians, there in chapter 5, Paul brought up a very grievous sin that was happening in the church. There was a man in the church who was actually having sexual relations with his stepmother. And there were two problems in this. One was the grossness, the severity of the sin. And the idea with this is the guy was doing it and but he's still like coming to church, but everybody knows about it. Okay. Now she's never addressed. The woman is never addressed in in the when Paul writes to them. So the 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 belief is is she wasn't a believer. But this guy's carrying on. I mean, this is like soap opera stuff, you know that that's happening with this guy, and. There were two problems. First was the man's sin, and the second was the church's tolerance of it. I mean, this guy's coming, you know, he's in worship, he's, you know, doing his thing, and they're just all acting like nothing is wrong. And Paul writes to them, and he rebukes them for their tolerance, and then he says, you guys need to deal with this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Little sin's going to affect the whole church. You can't just let this go on. So he gave very specific instructions, and his instructions were this. Turn such a one over to Satan. In other words, disfellowship him for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, that his sin would just get the best of him, that his soul might be saved. That was this instruction that Paul gave to them. Now, at first the Corinthians didn't like that. They were grieved by this. They didn't want to deal with this, but, but they end up coming to see the light. And the majority of them, it wasn't all of them, but there was the majority of them, they dealt with this and they kicked this guy out. But now there's another problem as it relates to this individual. You see, after some time, the guy <laughs> turned from his sin. He repented. What Paul was hoping would happen worked. The guy came to the end of his flesh and he turned back to the Lord. The discipline worked and he wanted to get back into fellowship. But now the church didn't want to receive him back. 
It was like he had the scarlet letter and they just, you know, didn't want to have this guy around anymore. And so now Paul is writing to exhort them of their need to forgive and restore this guy. And he's going to give them four reasons why it was necessary and important for them to forgive and restore when a brother or sister is repentive. So first of all, the first reason he gave them to forgive and restore was for their own sake. Look in verse 7, he says, or for his own sake, for the man's sake, lest he be swallowed up and overcome with much sorrow. You guys, he's saying, look, you need to restore this guy so he doesn't, he's not devoured by guilt. Sin brings guilt. It's been said that we feel guilty because we are guilty. That's what, that's what sin does. It makes us feel guilty, and often we feel guilty even after we've been forgiven because of the damage that our sin has caused, right? We see the damage. We see the, 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 you know, what, what has happened because of that. And so Paul's saying, look, for this guy's sake, for his soul, for his heart, you need to forgive him. Now the Bible, in fact, Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians, the difference, or he'll talk about this in 2 Corinthians, the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And Paul would say, you know, worldly sorrow is sort of sorrow over the fact that I got caught. That's worldly sorrow. Like you're found out, like, oh, bummer, you know, they found out. Like you're, oh, you know, and I've seen that, oh, tears. And they're, they're, they're not crying because of their sin. They're crying because, oh, I've been exposed now, you know. I'm embarrassed and oh, you know, that it's all, it's all about me. But godly sorrow sees sin for what it is. First and foremost, that it is against God, that it affects my relationship with God. And Paul says godly sorrow leads to repentance, a turning away from the sin, going in the opposite direction, having a different attitude. Worldly sorrow is where I'm trying to justify my sin and make excuses for my sin. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is I'm taking full responsibility. And I blew it. I sinned, and it was wrong. This man's sorrow had brought him to repentance and brought him to a change, and Paul would say, man, don't let this guy be devoured now by his sorrow. Don't let him be devoured by his guilt. It was important that the church assure this repentant sinner of their love. You know, it's been said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. And there's truth to that. We have a tendency to do that. Somebody comes in and they've blown it and we just, you know, rake them over the coals. We take out our arrows and we, you know, fire shots at them. And it's like, oh, gee, thanks, you know. Instead of being a, a hospital, we become a different kind of battlefield, you know, for that person. So first of all, they were to forgive and restore him for his own sake. Second, they should forgive and restore him for the Lord's sake. Look at verse 9 and 10. Paul says, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven the one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Here's Paul's point. Paul's saying, guys, forgiveness is not an option. Forgiveness is not a matter of personal preference. Boy, we tend to do that a lot in the church. 
I don't want to forgive him. You know, I'm going to be mad at him. I'm going to be mad at her. And, you know, I'm just in, we do that type. No, it's not a matter of personal preference. It's a matter of obedience to the Lord. You see, the problem was not simply between a sinning brother and a grieving church, but it was a problem with a sinning brother and a grieving Savior. And the man had sinned against Paul and against the church, but first and foremost, he had sinned against the Lord. Remember David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, and Nathan comes and finally exposes him, and and, and he confesses. Now think about this. David had sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against her husband Uriah, had him murdered, sinned against um, his chief advisor Ahithophel, as Bathsheba was his granddaughter. What does David say when he prays? I think it's in Psalm 51 or Psalm 32. I get them mixed up. Both of them are dealing with that particular time in his life. He says, Lord, it's against you and you only that I have sinned. Now, was David saying, I didn't sin against any of them? No, he's saying what matters most is I've sinned against you, God. That's first and foremost. It's recognizing that. And here's the point that Paul's making. The Lord forgave the man because of his repentance, and Jesus commands us to forgive others because he has already forgiven us. And you see, all of us, we have been guilty of breaking promises to Jesus and letting down Jesus and hurting Jesus. But the soul that repents, Jesus forgives. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus commands us to be like him and to do the same. Forgiveness is a must. It's a command. And if we don't forgive, you know what happens? We open up the door for bitterness to destroy us. Which leads to the third reason that Paul gave that they must forgive the offender is for the church's sake. Look at verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The Greek phrase take advantage is used four other times in the New Testament. And it has the idea, get this, of cheating someone out of something that belongs to them. Think about that. He says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, cheat us out of something that belongs to us. You see, Satan loves to use bitterness and unforgiveness to cheat us out of the joy and the peace that is ours in the Lord. Bitterness and unforgiveness have a way of plaguing our conscience. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about beware of roots of bitterness whereby many become defiled. And I have literally seen whole families become defiled by one person's bitterness and unforgiveness. And it's really, really ugly. That's why Paul in Ephesians 4 would write this. Be angry and do not sin. Now check that out. Be angry, like, hey, anger's an emotion. It happens. You get angry. Get upset with your wife or you get upset with your husband. Something else. You get angry, he says, but don't sin. What's sin? Sin is allowing that anger to fester. Allowing it to turn in, to take root and to turn into bitterness. He says, don't be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The idea there in, in that word, if you want to write this in your Bible, don't give places. Don't let the devil get his foot in the door. 
You know, it's like in those cop shows, you know, when they come and they knock on the door and the perpetrators, you know, trying to close the door and they stick their foot, you know, in it or they stick their battering ram in it, you know, so the door doesn't close. And, and what's the point of that? Because they want to get in and that's the devil. You know, don't let him get his foot in the door because he's not going to stay there. You know, he's not going to just hang out with, okay, great, I got my foot in the door. No, he wants to get into the house. He wants to get into the heart. He wants to take over your thoughts and your heart and your emotions. And when we have bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts, we give place to the devil and we give opportunity for that bitterness to take root. So they needed to forgive and restore so that they didn't become defiled as a congregation. And that's why I always remind you guys of this. That we here at Calvary Vista are not a group of perfect people. There's no one here, including myself, none of us on staff, there's no one here who has arrived. But we are all broken people who are in the process, key word, of being transformed by a loving Redeemer. That's what's happening with all of us. None of us have arrived. We're, we're all broken still. Being transformed. The Lord's working on us, molding us, shaping us. And that's why the church is to be like a hospital where we come not just to feel better, but to get better. We're to be a community of redemption where we love and forgive because we have been so greatly loved and so wonderfully forgiven by Jesus. Amen? So their response to this situation could really characterize in the long term the makeup of this church, which leads us to the fourth reason. It was for the sake of their witness. Look at verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, what he's saying here is he was, he was waiting. Titus was bringing word to him about what was happening at Corinth. And he was saying, you know, I, I just, you know, a great open door, but I was troubled because I, I couldn't find Titus. And I just was so wanting to hear what was going on with you guys. But then he says this. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God and Christ. Listen, Paul is saying something here that's really, really powerful. He's saying that the church is supposed to give off the fragrance of Christ in the world around us. Now, to those who are content in living in their rebellion, the gospel and the witness of the church is the fragrance of death. Why? It condemns them. John put it this way in his gospel. He said that those who are living in darkness, they hate the light. Why? Because it exposes their evil deeds. 
And you've experienced that. You've had people in your life, maybe in your family, who, you know, you're walking for the, you know, with the Lord and you're, you know, seeking to live for the Lord and they're not and they just would get so irritated, you know, with you. And your life was giving off this aroma of death. Your just conduct and, and being in love with Jesus was condemning them. But then the flip side of that, though, is that those who recognize their sin and their need of a Savior, it's the aroma of life. It's like they see in us a, a hope. It's why Peter would write and say that we always need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Now, Paul here is drawing upon an analogy of the Roman victory parade. And when the Romans would conquer a city, and they would be coming back to their city of where the, the army was stationed or coming back to Rome itself, they would throw a gigantic parade. And all the people would line the streets and they would be cheering as the army came marching in and they would put all over the streets flower petals. So picture that, all these flower petals. Now when the Roman soldiers would come back, they usually would have their general, he's on a white stallion leading the way, his troops are marching behind him and behind them are the captured. Now, is, what's interesting is often the distance they would smell the smell of barbecue because they were going to have a feast. Cooking beef, you know, they'd smell that like, oh, the aroma of victory. But what also they would smell is this, as they would walk on those flower petals, it would crush them and it would give off a, a fragrance. Now, to the soldiers, it was the fragrance of life and victory, but to the captured, it was the fragrance of death, the aroma of death, because they knew, many of them, they were going to lose their lives. And Paul is drawing upon this picture that the people of Corinth, being a part of the Roman Empire, were very, very familiar with. But here's what's interesting, is what he's bringing up in this analogy, is that often it takes the crushing, the crushing times in our life to give off the aroma of the flower. Oftentimes it's the difficult situations in the church that bring a crushing. And it's to give off an aroma. And this particular situation that Paul's alluding to with this man was going to give off, the way that they dealt with it is, was going to give off an aroma. It was either going to be give off this a stench or a sweetness. It was going to give off a, a stench if they continued to keep this guy at arm's length and be the place that was known like, man, those people, they're, they're not forgiving at all. They're just a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites, you know. Or it was going to give off the aroma of sweetness in seeing how they lovingly dealt with this man and brought this man back into fellowship. And when we deal with situations in the right way, it's sweetness. It's beautiful. It's awesome to see God work, and he's glorified. And what Paul is saying of this church is true of every single one of our lives. And I want to leave you with this, this thought tonight. You have a fragrance. It's not Chanel number 9, okay? It's not Old Spice. 
No, you have a fragrance. That's a part of your life. It's a fragrance that, that you emanate as a follower of Jesus. What is that fragrance? Is it stinky? Because your life is marked by a lot of hypocrisy? Is it, is it stinky because of the, the bad attitudes? Is it stinky because you know, you're all caught up maybe in you know, just all the, the ramblings going on and in the media and social media and all that kind of stuff? And it's like just, you know, what, what's emanating? What's coming out? We, we need to think about that. Is it stinky? Is it divisive? Or is it, is it sweet? Is it, is it the heart? Of Jesus. Paul wanted this church and he wants our lives to give off that fragrance of Christ. And that happens as we, like Paul, make Jesus the center, keep Jesus as the focus. That we can say that we carried ourselves with a simplicity. And godly sincerity. That's one of the things I used to love about, again, Pastor Chuck, is he would, he would say, he would quote this often. He'd say, remember, keep it simple, stupid. And, uh, <laughs> and man, we need to hear that so often, don't we? What's the fragrance? Oh, may it be the fragrance of Jesus coming forth from us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and this example of our brother, the Apostle Paul, in dealing with a difficult situation, but allowing his testimony to speak for itself. Lord, may, may we have those kind of testimonies. And Lord, tonight we... Rejoice in the reality that Jesus, you are the great promise keeper. And Lord, as I pray that our hearts would be those that would seek to press into you, to be more like you, that our lives would give off, that our lives would emanate the the fragrance of Christ to this world that you've placed us in. It's hurting, lonely, frustrated, confused. Lord, I pray for each and every brother and sister here, those who are watching online, those who will maybe watch this later, that we would keep our focus on the vertical. That we would press into you. That you might live through us. So we give you our hearts tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.